This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. You think you know somebody and then they write a book that surprises you. I've known Meredith Temple-Smith for 35 years and knew she went to South America but never really knew what she did. Now I do. Her story from Patagonia to Professor makes fascinating reading. Oh, you surprised me, Meredith. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Jan. Thanks for having me. Before I knew you in 1985, you and your husband, Peter, met Lucho, the Beetle Man, a famous South American entomologist. He was planning another field trip to collect more beetles and offered to be your guide and provisioner. Now, what were you planning to do in Patagonia? Ah, well, the truth is that Peter uh, had been very interested in South America for a very long time. So he's a reproductive biologist and uh, he's very interested in sperm of different animals. And the sperm of South American uh, marsupials is slightly different to that of Australian marsupials. And he wanted to try to find out whether or not the progenitor or the great-great-grandfather of the Australian marsupials had come from South America. So he wanted to go to examine the sperm of particular marsupials. And these little marsupials, they were called monitos. Monito del Monte. Yeah, Dromisiops australis was their proper name at the time. It's now, now, yeah. There's a little island off Chile, Chiloé Island, yeah. And the people there thought these little monkeys were actually spirits of the forest. And if they caught them, they kept them for good luck. And mm. of course, with a spirit... You don't need to feed it. Mm. So all these little monkeys died. That's right. Well, I must I must just say, Jan, they're not actually monkeys, although they were called monkey of the forest. They are actually um, marsupials. So they're, not, oh. they're opossums. They're little tiny sort of possum. Yeah. So how did you capture them? Well, uh, there were a number of different ways that we were trying to do this. And, of course, in, in the intervening years, they have been caught because trapping has become much more sophisticated. But back then, we, we were struggling to try to actually cap capture them. And uh, so we ended up offering locals money if they could bring them to us because often woodcutters found them. Uh, but in those days, we were trying to use traps, uh, which are a bit like the size of a milk carton, uh, a, a today's milk carton, but made out of metal. And uh, you would put some bait at the very end of that trap and uh, press down the, the little doorway and when the animal walked over the doorway, it would spring shut and the animal would be trapped inside. So we had a lot of those kinds of traps that we had to lay every night and baiting them with different kinds of bait that might attract them. Uh, and also we used some other bigger wire cages um, in case they would be more attracted by that. But of course the difficulty is that when these animals haven't been trapped before, as was the case in the, in the 80s, nobody knows what is going to attract those animals. So, you know, you're, you don't know what kind of bait they might be attracted to. So we were using uh, what is sometimes used in Australia, which is, you know, oats and, and might be honey or people might add in something smellier like sardines or mashed sardines, but you don't know what is going to attract an animal into, into a bait. Well, yeah. you mentioned it's checked every night. Oh, yes. It's it laid every night, mm. checked in the morning. Mm. And this isn't just like walking down the park to do it, no, is it? <laughs> not at all. And so in, in Chile, what people probably don't realise is it's the most beautiful country with the most enormous forests of amazing trees, very damp. Um, a, a lot of the forest is very, very damp. And so we were sometimes having to use machetes to kind of cut through the forest. And, you know, you lay the, the traps. But of course, the thing is, you it's quite cold and wet over there. 
there, was at that particular time of year, you don't want animals to die in the traps. And so it's very important that you go and check those traps very regularly. So you probably check them at least three times a day, which means that, you know, you've laid these traps, they might be 30 metres apart all through the forest, and then you have to go back and, and check them, you know, and even at midnight we were checking them every midnight. <laughs> through the book we really get mm. this sense of the tediousness mm. of, the, of the work and also the weather, you know, trying to keep sleeping bags dry. dry. Oh. Mm. But what you really needed were male monitos yes. in peak breeding season mm. and you were responding and of course you know if you got one you couldn't operate on it you know you had to mm. check its wee and that was one of your responsibilities well I, I was I was just really helping on the side there but yes um so Peter because you don't want to sacrifice an animal um unnecessarily and and often in peak breeding season male uh Drimisiops do actually when they urinate a little bit of sperm might come out so he was checking that wee um all the time so every time you saw I mean I was watching these animals all the time. I really enjoyed watching them. Fascinating behaviour because we actually had some that we and we made a little kind of home for them wherever we were camping. But if you saw them, we you would have to sort of pipette that up, and then Peter would go and look at it under a microscope to see if he could see any any sperm. And, and, and how did you feed them? Well, I mean, once again, this is something you're not too sure about. But we knew that they would likely like insects, and because we were travelling with somebody who was collecting insects, that was that was pretty good. But we used to um, trap enormous amounts of insects. And so that's, you know, you spend a huge amount of every every day trying to trap insects, which you can do by sometimes by light. You put on light, they will fly towards the light. You can get moths and things that way. But really trying to, you know, after we collected some of these animals while we were waiting for them to reach the peak breeding condition, it was a very full-time job constantly trying to find food for them. In the meantime, we were, you know, um, baiting other traps and going out to check those traps. And sometimes those traps would find other animals like rats and so forth in there so we would be weighing and measuring those rats and then uh, re-releasing them to the wild and so every single day was this as you say very tedious in, in many ways uh, work but physical quite physical work mm. you know carrying these heavy traps laying them down bending over in the jungle you know or forest not jungle um you know using machetes to cut things back so but hard work at one stage you said that these little everything you collected i think they ate better than you did yes well i think that might be true so um you know we were traveling and obviously we were a long way away from lots of other places you know one of the reasons we'd chosen to travel with with lucho was because he was used to sort of provisioning and going away for months at a time and um and also he was a you know local um chileno so we sort of thought we'd be in really good hands but obviously um he had a different set of ideas about, about what you know what what we might all need when we we're traveling and I was traveling with men I was the only woman and you know some men have bigger appetites than others and possibly westerners have more. and probably different personal ha habits yes. and I'm going to get Meredith Temple Smith to read from page 85 about how cattle troughs became useful yes okay of course, we ended up being grateful for the trough water, not only for washing dishes and ourselves, but for boiling before using and cooking. Again, I admonished myself for having to suppress feelings of revulsion when I thought of the cattle drool and rust and waterborne insects which I was swallowing with every mouthful, even if they were dead or denatured. I really should have toughened up by now. After all, every day, work continued on the camper van table. Dead mice were skinned there, insects and owl pellets were dissected, and while the blood or tissue was wiped away last thing at night, often lunch was served amongst the gore. Why couldn't I just put thoughts about cleanliness out of my mind? 
Well, cleanliness. And then there's toileting. And this is the quote. Squatting in bush, swatting away horse flies, or not even being able to squat because of the wind. Mm. The wind in Patagonia was absolutely unbelievable. It's so strong, you can actually lean back into it and be supported by the wind. And so, of course, you know, for men, it was fine. They could just unzip their flies and, you know, turn go with the wind. And go with the wind. <laughs> but for me, I would be blown over. And uh, there's one funny story in the book where one time we were travelling and we came to the entrance of a, a cattle station, normal these places are like this sort of around the centre of Australia, enormous great big places. Someone had dug a, a big hole to put some gate posts in, but the gate posts weren't in there. So I actually went into the hole and it was the first time I was actually able to have a wee without being blown over. <laughs> And then there was the time that you did find a public toilet. Mm. And what did the women say to you? Oh, well, look, I think the thing is that, you know, people are very, very accepting in Chile. Uh, You know, particularly we all seem like such foreigners. We all looked incredibly, incredibly different. But they were very, very kind. But I think what you're referring to is the time when I was in a public toilet in Australia when some women thought I was a man. Is that the one that you're referring to? It is. Okay, so that actually happened when uh, Peter and I had been on a field trip in Australia and I was wearing khaki, you know, outfit and, you know, army disposal clothes, but I had I had very, very short hair. And we went into a public toilet somewhere in a small country town and there was a busload of ladies who looked like they might have just been up to play the pokies somewhere. And um, as they came into the toilet, as I came into the toilet, one of the women said to me, this, <laughs> this is a women's toilet, Sunny, you get out of here. And she sort of whacked me with her handbag. And I thought it was a bit funny, but afterwards I went over to Peter and, and I told him, about it and he put his arm around me and we were laughing about it and then we could see these women were probably even more horrified because there was a lot of homophobia in those days so they probably thought we were gay. Now that that is a cultural reference for me but you actually do talk about and you mentioned Mm. you were the only woman there Mm. and there was a campfire and Mm. look maybe we've got time from read from page 109 because it, it really made a difference. Okay. This is a spontaneous campfire. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the arrival of the five very pleasant but outgoing Spanish locals dominated the attention of Lucho and the three Australian men. We three, two Indian men and a woman, were somehow marginalised and unable to participate in this interaction in some subtle, unspoken way. I'm sure it would not have crossed Peter's or Tony's or David's minds that I might feel vulnerable or excluded, but as the only woman among 11 men, I felt grateful for Pedro's and Checho's body warmth, both literally and metaphorically. I had not previously observed Checho's and Pedro's Indian ethnicity, making them feel marginalised, but I wondered whether they were sticking close to me to provide protection or to seek it. But at the beginning, we know that it's a detective story because... (laughs) What happened? Well, so uh, at the time when I was on this trip in the 80s, I had thought it would be fantastic to write the diaries up and maybe tell the story of how hard it is to do fieldwork because I think we all see these nature programs on TV. We've got no idea that sometimes people go through enormous privations to actually get that footage for other people. So I thought I'd like to tell the story. I wrote very detailed diaries and then we, we went to London so Peter could work at Regent's Park Zoo and on the first day in London, the bag with my diaries in it was stolen. 
and alongside it a whole lot of little tiny bones of another very rare marsupial that we had managed to find evidence of. And it was an absolute tragedy. So for years I didn't ever know what had happened to those diaries and I've always wondered. And then when my dad died in 2015 and I was cleaning up the house, I realised there were a whole lot of letters that I had written from South America and that really enabled me to put a whole lot of information together along with Peter's help to recall the trip. The title is From Patagonia to Professor. Mm. Peter was a born academic, mm. but Meredith Temple-Smith, you really, you worked hard at it. I worked hard at it. I was definitely not going to be the sort of person who would naturally make it to professor. Look, I think that's the, the reason I've called it Patagonia to Professor is because I am now a professor, obviously, but I have a lot of young women saying to me, how on earth did you achieve that? You know, you must have had a wonderful education and, you know, parents who were always determined that you would do this but nothing could be further from the truth it was hard work and so at the end I really just talk about what were the kinds of qualities I think about myself that actually helped me get there. When you look at the cover of the book you'd be surprised it's a photo of Meredith with a shrunken head. (coughs) Meredith Temple Smith has written about the harshness and highlights of a scientific field trip and how it may have shaped her life in From Patagonia to Professor. Towns run deep. All towns run deep. People run deep. In Lucy Trelaw's latest novel, Days of Innocence and Wonder, we find just how deep that can be. So, Lucy, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks so much for having me. Now, your central character, Till, lost a friend at the age of five, and there's a profound psychological impact. In what ways did that shape her, affect her? The the occasion of the abduction of this friend of hers um, was when she was playing with Till, this friend of hers called E in the book, and uh, and and Till's feelings of guilt about not having screamed to alert everyone at the kindergarten about this abduction taking place um, stay with her all through her life, the feelings of of shame and guilt that she should have done something. But you also touch on a number of things. I mean, you've already mentioned the name of that friend was Eve. That that friend is never actually given a name. Till can't... Till can't say the name E because the abductor used the name and she can't say anything that reminds her of this particular abductor and so she she just kind of withholds that and it's a kind of wall that she comes up against. But the name uh, is also with Till as well, as in Till has changed her name. Mm. Yes, because the abductor used Till's former name, which is something we don't discover. Um... Yeah, so she has to live with that trauma she, and she has to block off all of the reminders to that event that she can. It also goes to clothing as well. She has a, an, a, a reaction to a coat she's given. Why is that? Uh, e uh, was, on the day she was abducted, was wearing a red coat. And so any signs of red, uh, wearing red clothing act as triggers for Till as well. And so after this event, she she screams every time she's given red clothes to wear and has to just not wear. She wears black. And music as well. Yeah. Some of the decisions mm. Till makes about singing, where did that come from? Well, in a way, I think E, uh, sorry, E makes, E becomes a kind of shape that Till 
moves her life to Phil. She's trying to create a, an alternative life for E, the missing E. And E was a wonderful singer and they used to sing together as small children And until um, she gives E a voice in her absence and she adopts the kind of voice that she imagines that E would have had. But all of this affects Till's identity, make up her notion of memory as well. She can't recall. As a five-year-old, she was asked to recall what she saw. She can't in terms that adults would understand. And even now, uh, some 18 or so years later, she's having difficulty with that memory. Yeah, that's right. I think it is one of those things in the writing that was just trying to depict the way her mind shears away from approaching those memories and that she can approach them so far and then then she has to sort of take flight emotionally. Well, we'll we'll go on to take flight in a minute, Mm. but there was one episode where she's watching school children as an adult she's watching Um, school children and it's traumatic for her Mm. yes when she she arrives in a different town and um, she's watching children she doesn't know what they're walking along the road for and it's a very kind of sparsely populated town and she sees these children and she's okay watching them until one day she sees one wearing a red dress and she's terrified for her and runs runs after them just kind of uh, following them not exactly stalking them but following them to make sure they get to wherever they have to go safely and it's all just because of this triggering of the red dress and so that event uh, of E's disappearance has basically shaped her Mm. and uh, she lives that every day every day yeah that's right till gets in her car and drives with her greyhound birdie uh you've touched on COVID here and you've touched on bushfires as well so this sense of uh being penned in uh, caught up which we all experience so in some ways this is a, a post-covid it completely is yeah I think of it as a I mean one of the things I love about novels is that they have a documentary function along with all of their other purposes they have a whole lot of thematic things going on character and so on but they're also recording the age in which they're written and I really wanted to make use of that for psychological purposes but the psychology is similar in some ways it's the trauma Mm. of those moments and what the impact that it's had on us which in many ways shapes our decisions later on which gets to Till going on, uh, or getting in her car and driving. The point was the journey, Mm. you say, at one stage. So just escaping. Escaping, yeah, being in a car, because you're untouchable in a car in a way. If you're inside a car, it's very hard for someone to take make make away with you you know to abduct you in any way and and it was really as a kind a journey of safety is what she was after the journey itself but also Mm. coming to terms with the nature of life how were you supposed to remember when the world and all its markers had become untethered Mm. from life so this trying to find a sense of place of tethering uh and she gets to where are we a sort of town beyond the goiter line just explain that yeah the goiter line is this amazing uh surveyor's line that was developed in the 1860s by a man called goiter obviously uh who who worked out that north of the line uh you could only support the land could only support stock south of the line it could it could support wheat and that was the kind of rich land that was profitable and so she moves to this land that is outside the goiter line it's marginal land it's land that's just just hanging on (laughs) but in some ways a reflection of where we are as people totally just (laughs) hanging on Mm. but what she finds in this small little town 
is another representation of trauma in some ways, mm. the eccentric nature of the people and that sense of life is virtually um, what she's been through in microcosm in some ways. It's very true and I wasn't really aware of that when I was writing but, uh, but I think we all, well many people have some kind of trauma in their background and it, it kept on unfolding in that way while I was writing that one person after another would have some trauma. So there's a woman called Bev who's got a missing daughter. Um, there's a, another couple whose son has been has died in mysterious circumstances. But it's also a reflection of uh, how people behave. So Bev is a really mm. irascible character. You know, mm. you shouldn't be here. It's all, but it's only when you have lived with the person long enough that you understand their background and can see what has shaped and influence them. Mm. And I think that's, uh, I'm, I'm always interested in what's going on underneath the surface of people. It's not only underneath those characters, but what's going on under the surface of towns and of landscapes. What are all the things that lie beneath? And, you know, there might be a kind of functional surface, but there's trauma, there's damage, there's a whole lot of other things going and on. you also point out that people's reactions don't actually change because you actually reference Daniel Defoe, a journal of the plague years, and People sort of tried to get around the restrictions because of um, all of the, the impositions that were put in place. People don't change. No, I was really. I came across Daniel Defoe um, uh, when I was during during lockdowns and started reading it, and I could not believe the similarities. You know, people that would sneak out and go and visit friends when they weren't supposed to and they'd be confounded when they got plague or, you know, they'd try and row away in their boats out, outside the zone of, of disease. Uh, yeah, it was all happening in Melbourne. And so what we've got, we've got um, a policeman from Peterborough, Rod, who's behaving poorly. We've got Bev, as we said, who's lost her daughter, Liz. Tundra has lost her son, Bear. Ed has actually uh, lost a relationship with Liz. Isaac has lost his parents. So really, this is a town full of um, pressures, concerns, psychological trauma. But it's every day in some ways is the point you make. But I want to jump here mm -hmm. to the image of the thylacine. So you have um, a um, the long-lost thylacine and people's attitude towards it, which is a metaphor in some ways for what is going on. Um, oh, I've got my references page 86. And um, there is some madness in people. When they have destroyed almost everything, they have to keep going. Just make sure they haven't spared a single thing. Kill it all so there's no reminder. Shame, cruelty and greed, it's a lust. They're so thorough, you know. Wipe it all away so nothing can remind them. Cut down the trees, empty the sea. People, they say it all in the past. They say it's all in the past. What? What's all in the past? A dreadful rushing heat poured up Till's chest and up her neck and hit her cheeks. She shut her eyes and held her breath until she felt faint. Oh, sweetheart her mother said, not seeing her state. That was the problem with stillness. I don't mean anything in particular. That we know better, all that. I mean, just that computers and photographs and paintings mean the past is always here. We can see what other people saw. It's different from where we are, though. That thylacine was just a pest and a challenge then. It's time that's made us understand. But it was wrong, even then. So this notion of people coming into a place and destroying things without perspective 
And that thylacine has become a metaphor in some ways for all of that trauma. It so has. And I, I keep on seeing that idea of, of trauma reverberating um, through, throughout history. And I'm, I was thinking of that again um, this week, uh, looking at Gaza, you know, this destruction, um, you know, how much thoroughness is going to be applied there. Um, and, and this kind of drive to eradicate, I think it's, uh, it's kind of fascinating and awful, but, but curious to explore. But you also do it, you, you've mentioned Gaza, but you have a nod there in the, in the novel as well to Ukraine. Mm. And you've got people dressed in ordinary clothes trying to work their way through the rubble, through the trauma, order and disorder, the everyday and chaos. Mm. They're all one and the same and you've transplanted them into Wirral. It's true, it's true. But, uh, but I think that in, in, in all life, I think this is what I end up deciding, that 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 is life you know there's sweetness and there's horror that we that we're aware of this all the time in all of our lives even in a comfortable place like melbourne but also then in where we we end up almost with a, a detective story because the women yeah. are attacked and so there's a repetition of what has occurred we can't actually go into that in too much detail because that becomes intriguing it sort of becomes a detective story of sorts in terms of well how is this possible that the trauma of ages past can re-echo in the present day but you get to another interesting concept here when we talked earlier on about names and identity because when you get to the end of the novel and we can't tell what happens in chapter 30 that would be a dead giveaway but in chapter 29 the narrator claims her name, which is an interesting concept. The narrator all the way through, the third person uh, omnipotent perspective, but now you've given them um, identity in some ways. That I narrator does appear every now and then all all through the book and she just inserts herself a little bit here and there until is the third person the close third person narrator and then this this character sort of asserts herself strongly at the very end conjecturing about her own identity without stating it well is is that the author no it's not and 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 it was one of those problems i had when i was writing i i had first of all no first person narrator and um and i had this terrible feeling that that third person narrator was somehow voyeuristic um and I had huge problems working with that. And so I inserted this first person and I and commenting on things and, and I could start writing again. But you say there, I am the spirit of E, I am mm-hmm. the man roaming and... Am I? Pace. Am I? Not I am. <laughs> am I? Was it? I think it's am I. Um, and or am I? Yeah. Am I? Ah, well, I'm, I will just have to check just to make sure I was reading it um, intently enough because you've got some notes in the back here we're going to run out of time um where i've lost the last chapter um i am um, that i've got it wrong (laughs) that i am the man roaming and pacing uh that i am there um so everyone that that is everyone in Mm. many ways all of the personalities and characters that have been Mm. in the book yeah Yeah. multiple points of view multiple points of view Mm. 
The novel, Days of Innocence and Wonder and the Trauma of Life and how that influences how we shape our identity mm. in the future, uh, that's the name of the novel. Uh, the author is Lucy Trelaw and it's a Pan Macmillan release. So, Lucy, you had your own trauma getting in today. I certainly did. Thank you for <laughs> persevering. We're happy to have been able to talk with you today. Um, thank you so much for having me. And I was speaking with Meredith Temple-Smith and her book, From Patagonia to Professor. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.